0: Welcome to the OA Serenity Sunday meeting podcast. Serenity Sunday is now hybrid, meeting in person at Roxbury Park in Beverly Hills and on Zoom. Visit the Los Angeles Intergroups webpage at oalaig.org for information on how to join our meeting live in either iteration. Now that we're meeting in person, Serenity Sunday has regular meeting expenses and would appreciate Seventh Tradition donations to help support the meeting and this podcast. You can donate via Venmo at Serenity Sunday, last four digits of the phone number are 6255 or through PayPal, Serenity Sunday 1212 at gmail.com. The opinions expressed on the Serenity Sunday podcast are those of the individual speaker and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. And now our speaker.
1: My name is Nanette, I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Hi, Nanette. Nanette. Hello. Um, When I came to OA, I was, in my family, I was designated as the fat kid and my mother would always complain about me. It's very hard to find things for me to wear. And she told me that when i i better learn how to sew because it's too hard to find anything in stores and so i did learn how to sew in junior high school and uh by the end of my compulsive eating um, i was wearing for the last maybe two years the same dress pattern and for those of you who know how to sew the, the pattern was tattered with pin marks and tears i made it out of the same fabric, which was polyester interlock, which was like a stretch. It stretched like nylon or something. It didn't have to have darts. And I made this dress pattern with a U neck, with a square neck, with a V neck, and with something with a little tie in the front. And I wore this dress everywhere. I wore it to work, I wore it to meetings, I wore it to picnics. And if I had been invited to the Academy Awards, it would have been this dress. And so I came, and I knew from the first meeting I belonged here. I related to everything, and it seemed like everybody was there sharing secrets. They're normal sharing, but in my home, you just didn't share anything had to do with anything outside the home. And um, so everything sounded like a secret, and they were all my secrets too. So after meetings, I would eat. I would definitely eat a lot of food to get rid of the feeling of having been in a meeting. And during the meeting, I would think, where should I eat for lunch? You know, I would, do that to this day. In this meeting, I would sit there, where should I go for lunch? So um, it's not that I didn't like you, but I always ate for relief. I didn't know it then, but I, the relief, I, I'm the garden variety compulsive overeater, eat when I'm happy, eat when I'm sad, eat when I'm bored, eat when I'm excited. And to this very day when I eat, there's an element that it feels like it's a party, I get to eat at a party now. And uh, the thing I really ate after, over was um, self-loathing. I was in every situation I was in, and there was a self-loathing of I don't belong here, they're going to find out, I feel uncomfortable, everybody doesn't look like me, all these things. So. In eight years, the first eight years of OA, I was absent eight times. And I was absent three days, five days, four days, 15, 17, 23, 27 was number seven. And right now, to this day, I'm on absent number eight. And absent number eight so far has lasted 39 years. There's a big difference between 27 days and 39 <laughs> years. So, what happened? I don't know. Every abstinence, abstinence I went on from one to seven was a secret diet. Of course, I heard we're not a diet club, but I came in with a diet mentality. And for me, recovery was the perfect diet forever. And that's what they were. And I can say that diets are abstinences, but they're not necessarily recovery. And so I personally use the word recovery for myself, but when I share at meetings, I say abstinence because I use the words we use. Because in the beginning, I would complain somewhere in there. When they when I started OA, they're, they're, uh, the, A, the OA 12 and 12 hadn't been written. And even after they wrote the 12, they, they published the 12 without the other 12. <laughs> so, but I, we use the big book. And so they would translate, put food in place of alcohol. And I would get so critical of chapter three. If you can eat like a gentleman, we take our hats off to you. And I'm thinking, that's a wrong translation. You should say, if you eat like a lady, we take our hands hats off to you. Because men eat like pigs. <laughs> <laughs> And so I would complain <clears throat> that this is not a podium. This is a lectern, a podium, <laughs> something you stand on. everything. Ohio Street was not Ohio Street, Ohio Avenue. So every little thing that I could find that was different that I couldn't agree with, I would complain about in my head. And then one day I got so fed up with OA that I I verbalized my complaints in a three-minute pitch. So after I pitched, everybody applauded, and they went on to the, onto the next person. So, so nobody cares you know <laughs> but i felt like gee i can be as bad as i can be because i to me that's being bad and they still accept me they applaud it and they go on to the next person so okay so what happened with this number eight time is i i noticed that after eight years i had 27 days max and that didn't sound good that was not a good record so i said i have to do something different oh i'll just do what i hear at meetings it's not gonna work. So I said, meals at mealtime with life in between. I didn't describe what the meals would look like, just life in between. And life in between for me included popcorn at the movies. And I did that and I didn't want to eat breakfast at one AM. I think it's okay to eat breakfast at one AM, but I didn't wanna do it. So meals at mealtime. And the first thing I really noticed with my eating besides since I'm not on a diet anymore, is that when I went in, was in a restaurant and they had rolls, I ate too many rolls and it made me feel bad. That, I connected that. So I said, one of my guidelines for abstinence is, if I'm in a restaurant and if they have rolls, I have one roll and one pat of butter, no matter which runs out first. And I put it that way because what I do is I would take the roll, open the little packet of butter, I'd finish the roll and there'd be butter left. Have to take the second roll to use up the butter but there wasn't enough butter for the second roll to open the second butter and then there'd be some second butter left to take the third roll to use up the second butter and it just would escalate that way and it made me feel bad so then after i had one roll and one pat of butter okay there's butter left i don't have to have it and i ate every last thing they served me every grain of rice the decorative lettuce that i wanted it everything because i figured if they served it to me it was my portion in a restaurant which is like a huge portion <laughs> unless it's a very expensive restaurant then it's a small portion. <laughs> so one of the things that happened during this beginning of this particular absence is that I discovered I have a disease of perfectionism. And in me the disease of perfectionism was really powerful and strong, as strong as the disease of compulsive overeating. And in order for me to recover from compulsive overeating, I realized that perfectionism and overeating, the disease of either one, they were conjoined twins. They embodied me together. And if a conjoined twin gets a cold, they both get a cold. If the conjoined twin takes a Tylenol, it would be in both circulation system. Whatever happened to one happened to the other. So I had to be willing to recover from the disease of perfectionism at the same time. Otherwise, I was never going to recover from the disease of compulsive overeating. And the only way I have ever found to recover from the disease of perfectionism is that if I think I'm imperfect, I have to keep it. Because every time I started over, I was practicing the disease of perfectionism, which my every recovery in compulsive overeating was going down the the tubes. Okay, so that's one of the things that was different. And I, uh, Kelly, can you tell me how much time I have left altogether? Um, Eleven. 45. Okay, thank you. Um, oh, and I want to mention that when I was doing the one roll and one pat of butter, one restaurant put on a, a basket of assorted rolls. So it's big debate: which one looks best? Which one tastes better? If I take this one, maybe that one tastes better. And I knew it was a bad idea this is a lifelong program, which I tried to make it so. I have to, I couldn't feel deprived. That would not work. So I had I decided I would have one of each kind of roll. They would all share the same pat of butter. There turned out to be three different kinds. I had all three different kinds. They shared the same pat of butter all the way to scraping the paper. Yeah. And that was another day of um, another abstract week. So anyway, the second thing I discovered is that I couldn't, I couldn't believe I was powerless over food. I felt like, okay, okay, you guys say that because you need a working definition, so you can work the 12 steps." You know, that was my attitude. And I had recovery before in a program for friends and families of alcoholics, and I knew I did step one there, but not in OA. And I, I, I wanted all my credentials from the other 12-step program transferred to OA, but it wouldn't transfer because I still as, as much emotional and spiritual recovery I had it to translate into the physical until I started going to OA eventually. So I was told that for me to ask an alcoholic not to drink was exactly the same as asking a tubercular not to cough coughing is part of that disease. And if I ask somebody not to cough, it's impossible. And so for myself, I had to translate that to myself, that if the guy who has TB coughs and says, I'm never going to cough again, this is the last time I'm going to cough, I'm going to work 12 steps and never cough again. He's saying two things with that statement. He's saying one, I don't have a real disease. And two, I have power over a cough. And I know those TB is a real disease, and there's no power over a cough. And that's the powerlessness, step one, and powerless over food. Before this, I did try to do the steps. I thought about it, wrote about it, talked about it. Everything, everything was in my head. It wouldn't, I didn't really believe it in my gut. In order to believe it, I had to make it a cough. If I so I told myself it's perfectly okay to binge and overeat, because that was my cough. And it'd be unrealistic to say, don't cough. And if I cough, punish myself for doing so. And that sounded, it sounded fraudulent, but I had to act as if, just like somebody who doesn't have a higher power, I had to act as if. And after acting as if, and feeling like a fraud, but I I knew that was the only way to travel into my gut, is to really believe it. After about three months, something happened to me. I suddenly had a different perspective, and this is what it was. For the first time in my life, I felt blameless. I never felt blameless before. I was always at fault, I should have done better. I was not only the prosecutor, I was witness for the prosecution. So I felt blameless, and I knew that the powerlessness traveled to my gut. I believed it. I was not to blame, and it gave me relief it lessened my need to hate myself and be it just lessened that it stopped it but it lessened it so um that's how i did step one first part of step one i don't have time to go to the second half of step one that's another story um and then the last thing is oh god i always called god my higher power god seemed to to religious, I said higher power. And I realized I didn't have a higher power in Overeaters Anonymous specifically. I had a god in my other 12 step recovery, I had a god in the rest of my life. But in the circle of OA, no god whatsoever. And I had to write about it at my suggestion of my sponsor at the time. And she so I wrote about it. And the reason I couldn't reason there was no God I could not get in touch with a God who made me fat I just I did not trust that God what I just didn't so then I was it was suggested to me I write about what I wanted God to be like and this is what I wanted I wanted a God. big long that this popped popped up to me I wanted God to want me to live thin and that everything that happened in my life was in preparation for that time And I decided to try that God out. And as soon as I I made the decision to try it out, it clicked right in with the God of the rest of my life. That meant to me that there was nothing I could do wrong in OA or any place else, because every experience was a necessary experience for me. If I binge one more time, I needed to binge one more time. If I overate and ate the wrong thing at the wrong amount, whatever the thing, that was an experience I needed to live in later. And so, so then I had a God in my life and I, I felt this freedom God, with God had my head in my back. If I binge at, if I ate it in anger or say F you to somebody, I would say the actual word if this weren't recorded. Okay. <laughs> if I said that it's okay because I needed that experience. No experience is wasted in OA. So. There it is. So, okay. One thing I want to share uh, is the place where I was working. Um, I was hired by this guy who retired within a year, and I was assigned to four other people. And then this company, this organization, had um, annual evaluation. So, work for these four people; they were equal among themselves, but they, among them, des- designated one person to be my s- official supervisor, and so. She asked me to write my own evaluation, And I thought, oh, no, I wanna know what you think of me. I, I like you guys, I like the job, but I, have, you know, I didn't say that to them. I just, what am I gonna do? I had no choice, I had to write it. So it was a three page thing, it included narrative. I wasn't required to write the narrative and I didn't, but there were a number of designations um, the, there were seven, one to seven, seven being best and one being worse. And so one, two, and three, the, it was under the column that said improvement needed. And then uh, four and five was under the column that said satisfactory. And then six and seven seven was under the column that said excellent. So I had to be honest because I had to do it and turn it into her and that she was going to do hers and then we were going to have an interview and all that. So I had to be honest. What do I really think of my work here? This is what I really thought. I thought they couldn't hire somebody to do a better job than I did. They could hire somebody with different strengths and shortcomings, but not a better job. Now, if I thought that, which I did think that, that must be excellent. Mm-hmm. So I gave myself sixes and sevens straight down, nothing waver from that line. I did six or seven, it, not so good, six. Much better, seven. I'm even. At that time, I was maybe eight minutes late every day, three to eight minutes, that's a six. So I just did it and then I turned it in and then I started to panic. What did I do? How dare I say I'm perfect? Oh my God, what is she gonna think of me? Maybe they don't think I'm like that, maybe they think. So I pulled out my copy of what I turned in to review what I had checked off. And that's when I noticed something. And the column that I checked off it didn't say perfect on top it said excellent and for the first time in my life those two concepts separated i didn't even know i had them together but they got when they got separated i knew they got separated and so actually it didn't say i was perfect it said i was excellent so we had the interview she downgraded a few of my six my sevens to a six she upgraded a few of my sixes to a seven she upgraded more than she downgraded and she left the vast majority alone And so for that year, I got the highest raise you can possibly get in my category. So that's when I learned that you can be so excellent and not perfect at all. And sometimes if I feel, oh, sometimes when I feel like I'm being a human being, do something that human beings do, I don't punish myself for being so because none of us ever rise above human beings, no matter what. And programs change and evolve. The only things that don't change are dead people and statues. So I'll just end by saying this, how I envision my recovery. I see my recovery like a forest, and there are enough trees in the forest to make the forest a forest. And some of these trees are like redwoods and sequoias and oaks and um, i don't know a lot of i don't know trees are uh, eucalyptus beautiful trees and some of these trees are dead they're tree stumps lightning hit it it stopped growing maggots crawling through them and if you hike over there there's a grove of tree stumps and if i only look at the trees i'm going to miss what else is in my forest because so it's more there than trees there are waterfalls brooks and streams clover california poppies blue jays and I don't go to a forest and say, look, there's a there's this tree stump here. Let's trash this forest and go on to a fresh one. Because the forest is God-given and God-made, it actually has nothing to do with me. And I have to accept everything that's in that forest. So in my recovery, if I, I think my recovery is God-given and God-made, which I do think that, I have to accept everything that's there, no matter what my personal opinion is. I just have to accept it. So, I guess I'll end there. My time is up. Thank you so much.